Welcome to the EPS podcast. In this session, we look at creativity and the evolution of live events. From gamification and the metaverse to the blending of digital and physical interactivity at real world events, this session examines what lies ahead for the live event production business. Thank you very much for coming uh, to this panel on creativity, the evolution of events, where we'll be delving into the incredibly exciting topic of live event production. We'll explore topics such as VR, the metaverse, immersive theatre. We could talk about this for, for hours, but unfortunately we only have uh, 45 minutes. Uh, before we start, I'd just like to mention that we do have uh, barcodes starting about, and um, we've, got, we've got an app called VBOX, so if you scan the barcode, you can submit your questions and it will come up on the screen and we can answer them at the end. Uh, my name is Joe Gallup. I'm a reporter at Access All Areas. Um, I'm joined by three fantastic panelists today. I'll let you guys introduce yourselves, starting with you, Natasha. Hi, uh, my name's uh, Natasha Mortimer. I am the co-creator of Imaginarium, which is a, a creative design agency, and we consider ourselves uh, a design agency who do anything that is considered an immersive experience. And we'll delve into what immersive means in this panel, I'm sure. Hi, uh, my name is Graham McVoy. I, I have quite a few hats that I wear. I've, I've been working in events and festivals for oh, a long time, 20 years or so. I'm uh, the director, managing director at Wait the Tiger, a new immersive experience in Bristol. Um, I work closely with the, the team at Boomtown and have done for many years, and I'm the founder and one of the, <coughs> excuse me, one of the directors at GMC Events. Uh, hello. Um, I'm Chris Tofu, uh, Chris McMeekin from Continental Drifts. That's my director over there, that's the fan club. Uh, and uh, Continental Drifts has been in existence for over tw about 27 years. We have dealt with hundreds of great performances and stuff like that. We were the programmers of a thing called Las Vegas, which uh, became a really, really great immersive environment with over 17 or 18 micro venues. We came up with micro venues. We uh, more recently have delved into the metaverse uh, by creating the first kind of multi-room version of Shangri-La that you could walk around on the internet and on VR and chat with strange people dressed as jellies and uh, I'm a DJ and I do millions of other things. We do gigs for, produce gigs for about a million people a year as well. Lovely. And as Natasha just alluded to, uh, the term immersive in events is chucked around quite a lot. Um, what, does it, what does the term immersive kind of mean to you in events? And is there any events in, in the past, I don't know, in this, in this century that's kind of pushed the boundaries, you know, made a difference in the events industry and being, being immerse, immersive? <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, so uh, everyone's always saying immersive events. Even Lidl's had a sale on which was immersive the other day. You know, I mean, it's just being a word that used all over the place. Has lots of definitions, which we'll run through. But uh, chiefly, the immersive theatre really boomed in the 70s, 80s and 90s. And uh, is reflect that was immersive theatre. You go in the door. Loads of crazy things happen to you. You interact with that stuff. And people like Punch Drunk and most notably Bum Bum Train 
were real pioneers in this. Of course, Punch Drunk has venues all over the world doing the same thing now. So there was that, but that wouldn't, was only a small part because in places like Holland, you had the Dog Troop, you have organizations like Location Theatre Organizations, where, which has been going on since the 60s, loads of arts labs, loads of walking in the countryside, strange things coming out of you. So that was, that's really immersive theatre. But then there's many other versions, and my friends will help, I'm sure. I was just going to follow up on that. So the term immersive, obviously, has only more recently become a household name. And I think, particularly Punch Grunk, they, uh, they say they are site responsive. And I think that's where immersive theatre has kind of developed from, is things being site specific or site responsive. And that's immersive has been going on for so many years. but. It's just now we've given it a name, and now it's a household name to the point that even The Apprentice are doing an episode on immersive experiences, um, which is, I think there's two sides to this uh, coin about whether it's good or bad. Um, I think immersive is being used as a bit of a marketing ploy for some events that maybe I personally wouldn't consider immersive. However, it's also great that people are understanding what this word kind of means, because it means that there's a new audience out there, there's a captive audience ready to experience things that aren't so traditional. Yeah. I've got to agree. So one of the, uh, when we started Wait the Tiger in Bristol, we, we had a bit of a debate about how we were going to market it and whether we were going to use immersive and it, for exactly that reason. And, and Luke um, categorically did not want to use the word immersive because it, it was everywhere. And it was just that we don't want to be like all these other, other things. Some of them are and some of them aren't, um, depending on what your definition is. And I think um, we did go for it purely because we were trying to hit a wider yeah. market and it was a word that people understood. And, and I think from that point of view, it's, it's really good and it makes it easier for perhaps more niche stuff to hit a, a wider market because they understand it. But the flip side is that you're then putting yourself into a boat of, well, we're not the same immersive as, you know, Wait the Tiger's not the same immersive as Lost Horizons, for example, but they, they are both immersive events, but then you've got little, which, yeah. you know, I think there's a real sliding scale of quality. And I think that's where in the future, when people use the word immersive to market something, they're maybe going to have to give a bit more of a description than that. Or even, as we talked about, split it into certain categories um, because so that people understand what to expect. Because some of them are really interactive with actors getting in your face, which someone's not going to like. Whereas others are projections on a wall. It's a really calming experience and it's very relaxing. And I think unless that is explained, there needs to be a uh, managing the expectations of the audience for what they're going to get. And again, with price, like these pr the prices of these experiences, some of them are like secret cinema at 100 quid, whereas there's other ones that are like more off West End at 20, and you've got to set your expectations on that too. I think um, there's the WXO, which is the World Experience Organization, and what's the other one? The I IEN, the Immersive Experience Network. Yeah. and. So the IEN came up with 10 categories yeah. of, of different types of immersive event. And then the WXO, which is the worldwide one, expanded on that and came up with 20. And, and I was having a conversation last night, actually, with someone about how like the data capture is of, around these immersive events. And it's not quite mainstream enough for that data capture to be or for people to want to pay for it. So there isn't that breakdown of, of who's attending and, and what categories they are and how how that information can be used because that information really helps 
the companies grow and get investment and um, if that's what they're looking for or sell or whatever it is, it's, it's data. We all know how important data is and the data on immersive areas is, is not widely available yet. And, and that's something that would be amazing to be developed, but it, it's sort of chicken and egg. You need to, chicken and egg, is that right? Yeah. I'm not sure, but the, um, yeah, of, of getting to that point of the tipping point of, of enough people needing the data and we're willing to pay for it to fund the research. I, think, I don't know if I've wandered there, but anyway. Yeah, and for those of you, uh, for those of us that don't know too much about what Insagra have not been, do you mind giving us a little bit of context? Um, why was it set up? Uh, what was the inspiration behind Wet the Tiger? Um, so Wait the Tiger came out of, uh, well, COVID really, lockdown. Um, for many years, Luke and I had sort of been, Luke's one of the founders at Boomtown, uh, previously Lack, for those of you that, that know him as Lack, now Luke, um, had been talking about a permanent, a permanent experience that effectively would allow us to bring the sort of creative experience of Boomtown into a permanent location so that it's not just for folk that like you know, drum and bass or camping or festivals, that we could actually open up to a really a wider audience, make it more accessible um, and, and you know, make a great experience. So we, we started, you know, in, once we got you know, all the, the furlough and everything else under control, we started looking at Wake the Tiger and what we could do. And the, the Boomtown owned a, a warehouse in Bristol. And we, we, we went through loads of different ideas until um, a gentleman called James Wheel from Innovate just said, look, stop trying to do these things. Just be yourself. Do what you're good at. And it was like, let's just make a world. Let's make an experience. And we did that. And it it was quite a journey with, with lots of people. Nat was involved in it. And there was loads of people that, that helped us to deliver this this experience. And it it's you go into another world. It's Diagon Alley. There's rooms. There's art. There's interaction. There's experience. It takes about an hour and a half to go around. And it, it's exceeded our expectations in terms of ticket sales, in terms of like feedback and it and it gets better all the time we're adding to it it's, it's sort of never finished so it's um we we've created this this immersive experience in in bristol which is of london quality and a lot of people are really grateful for that as well because we've we've brought that out of that, that quality out of london and made it accessible to and we've had folk coming from west wales just specifically to come and see us and they're, they're so happy from swansea west wales that they don't have to go an extra four hours or three hours up to london and so it's really it's really great yeah i do think the immersive uh, experience market is way oversaturated in london and it needs to make its way out to other uk cities but i know that uh, the audiences aren't as captive there yet although i do think bristol and manchester are definitely up there and there is a, a want for immersive experiences um what I was going to move on to, because I know, Chris, you've been a massive part of Lost Horizon, um, is during the pandemic, things like Lost Horizon, which were a... You, you tell you about Lost Horizon, but I think it's, um, it's become, since then, loads of people have been wanting that kind of raw, in-person experience again, and I think there's a huge want for these sorts of experiences now, and it's more than ever, and even more so now that Immersive is a household name. But talk about Lost Horizon. Yeah, what, what impact is the coming out of lockdown? Because it had on you. Yeah, so uh, Lost Horizons, I'm like the least technical person in the whole world. And it's really strange that we should end up running this thing with all these Californians. But uh, basically, after when we were coming out of lockdown, what we wanted to do was create what they call a digital twin of the venue that we own in Bristol put artists on it and put them straight into the metaverse so that everyone can experience that. I know that sounds really 
rubbish probably, but let me just explain it in a different way. In the metaverse, all of you have your avatars, whether you're look and now VR's not just VR's practically over there, but it's on every screen that you can watch. You are like this avatar, except that sounds also rubbish. You can actually talk to the person who's next to you, who's in Iceland, as an avatar, as a blob of jelly, or whatever you want to look like. But it's that interaction that's really the immersive part there. It's crucial. And of course, the way the metaverse is, I know there's, you know, Lost Horizons is a particularly strange thing because we're not actually totally millionaires. We're just dedicated to our thing. But the word rabbit hole gets a whole new sort of look when you look at all these joined up metaverses. So you just go through one door, you're in the main stage, you go through another door, you're in an interactive area. But the way it's going right now is because it's not just tethered to VR glasses, you're gonna go, you're gonna be able to just travel for ages. Burning Man built a metaverse. It, if you were going around with it on your iPad, your fingers would have walked over four kilometers just getting around all the interactive things that was going on. That was the first one, actually, really, realistically. But, you know, the real experience is what people want as well, and as close to the real experience. And, you know, Wake, Wake the Tiger is 10 times cheaper than ABBA, the ABBA immersive experience, which is also really quite incredible. And I think within the last two years or three years, it's created a whole other arm to the entertainment industry. Throw in all the light shows and the light fests, plus hardly anything's as, like, quite as good as Wake the Tiger, frankly, but throw in that stuff. It's a whole arm to the, the entertainment industry now. ABBA is 150 quid a go. And uh, we did the maths of what they spent on it. And funny enough, they won't actually pay it back off. But now, Every single famous old band wants to do that now. So it looks like you're in the room with ABBA, basically. So yeah, it's all going in really loads of different directions. But yeah, this non-humans and humans would be a good way of sort of defining it. With Wait the Tiger is a non-human thing at the top and then Punch Drunk or whatever crazy thing. Boomtown's mad immersive, Glastonbury's madness. That's in another department. I think there's a there's a, something that we're working on at the moment as well, in both at, at Boomtown and Wake the Tiger, which is overlapping the the digital with the with the real experience. So you, there's a gamification through 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 the festival and and the um, and the experience, but is is put which physically exists. But we're trying to make that into a digital layer as well. So um, a for Boomtown, it extends the engagement throughout the year hopefully once that's built up which uh, which is quite an exciting new a new proposal and, and the platforms it's not you don't even need to develop this stuff anymore it, it's it's out there you can you can just work you, you work with sansar there's there's platforms for all of these things some of them better than others um and and doing a bit of due diligence and that is, is really important but that that ability to to combine the digital with the real life experience it, it is is really exciting I think there's been some experiences that have done that really, really well. And I think actually Boomtown is one of those experiences. Um, I think, unfortunately, there's a lot of experience out there as well that are using tech as a gimmick and not using it as something that can uh, complement or be a proper collaboration with the inhuman experience. I think, uh, 
I'm trying to think of some uh, Phantom Peak. I don't know whether anyone's seen that in London recently. They're using um, a lot, it's like a store. You're using your phone as like a you're doing these trails. But again, uh, there's actually a massive fan base behind that, and people are getting used to this sort of interaction as well. I think the um, you want the you want the digital to be an an extra. Like not in, in your case, it's the fundamentals. But if you've got a reel, it's it's a bolt on, and the same with whether it's the festival or experience, it needs that add value. But it should be able to stand on its own without it. I think it's really important. Yeah. I think apparently I've not seen the gunpowder plot either in London, but apparently that's got a really good VR section to it that's had really good feedback. Um, that's a quite a bit of the second half. So apparently they're doing it well. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I agree. <laughs> and. Um, Obviously, the Beam Town model has been so successful for so many years, um, but I guess there's so many issues now with cost. How, how do you balance the sort of creative element and new technologies with with obviously the issues with cost? Get more creative. <laughs> yeah. So, if you sorry, Gray, if you're using humans, and I hope everyone in this room knows loads of creative people or or looking at getting involved in this sort of stuff. You have to be really creative how you use those humans in terms of having all those direct, you know, touch, not touchy-feely, but, you know, you, you, you're in the same room, you're interacting with that actor. I think there's loads more we can do on that. I think there's loads of colleges. I think there's just loads of people you can get involved in that. And maybe a lot of you out here are thinking, oh, my God, we can't afford to do that or whatever in our light show or whatever. Actually, there's quite a lot of people who are really into it, but to do it professionally for a long time is coming mega bucks. Hence, Punch Drunk is about 120, 150 quid because there's like 60 people looking after you. You know what I mean? So, it's when we, um, I think maybe one of your previous questions, it was like when you're looking at the business plan and how you set up a business, people. I think in any business are fundamentally the most expensive part other than any you know capital expenditure you might have and I'm trying to design in a business plan that that's balanced on on the sort of operational requirement of what you need to deliver the experience and 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 still make and make make profit if that's what you want to do for the security of the business so I think um there's Again, I had a really interesting conversation last night about this, and there is a lot of experiences out there that are amazing experiences, but loads of actors, and fundamentally, as a business, that's quite difficult to, to, to perhaps grow if you want to grow, or even just to sustain it if if, if you want to keep it. And there was, when I spoke to this person last night, she was telling me that the UK market's like a. Uh, What's the word she used? Like a, a growth space for for testing these ideas because it is quite a it's quite a, sm a small country, it's especially in the south of south of England. It, it, there's a lot of people kicking around, and um, so a lot, there's there's foreign businesses that are investing and putting money into immersive experiences within UK to not make money, but then to be able to design it so it's replicable, and then they can take it to their Chinas or the South Koreas or or America, wherever it is, and that that's that is that multiplication, that scalability that that works, but getting that balance right of of people against um, you know operational costs is 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 critical to any longevity. I think. I think also there is a bit of an issue at the moment with um, inclusivity for the audience and the ticket price they're paying versus the inclusivity of the people working on the shows and just thinking about like a lot of festivals, there are a huge amount of uh, 
crew that maybe aren't paid as much as they should be. And this is no like, <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not trying to dig on anyone. I'm just saying that um, we were talking recently about, um, you know, the price of festival tickets. Are they, are they enough? And, you know, you could go to a gig and see, you know, Beyonce for 200 quid, yet a festival's not actually that much more than that. And um, I think there's maybe, it's hard to find that balance of being inclusive for people to come to these experiences while also paying everyone what they deserve on site and also allowing people from more disadvantaged backgrounds not to have to volunteer to get into the, like a foot in the door. And I think it's a really hard balance to crack. I don't think anyone's maybe found that balance yet, but it's definitely something that uh, needs thought and work on. And yeah, festivals like Boomtown, I know you've mentioned Boomtown a lot, not just Boomtown, but Lost Village, Secret Garden, Garden Party. These festivals have their own identity, they have their own niche. In Boomtown's case, they have their own story. If you're launching an event now, is, you know, is, is, is the hardest thing having your own identity in an event, in a smaller event, and how, you know, how do you go about this? I think if you're, if you're an independent launching an event now, it's having the startup capital to do it because the, the changes of ticket trends and purchasing trends in the last sort of well, in the last 12 months certainly, w w from my experience, is that everyone's buying a lot later. Their tickets are selling. I think generally they flatline quite heavily at the moment, as, as in they're steady but not high. And I think um, I think people are buying habits have changed since COVID. And I I think that if you're trying to start a show, that's that's a hell of a risk the hell of a risk to do that and then not only that to try and stand out and I think with the development of this sort of more creative side of festivals which um, you know started and started in Glastonbury for sure and, and is evolved into stage frontages on, on a lot of stages that there's a lot of scaff costs a lot of a lot of labor cost and yeah how you balance that's difficult I mean, the, the, the increase in supplier prices over the last two years is, is been unbelievable um, and it's pushed budgets up so much, and and even you know the ticket prices have gone up. That has made no difference. Like it's not enough. They, they need to go up so much more. But with cost of living in in that place as well, how do you balance all of those things? And it, I think it's really challenging for for a new event. I think you'd need to be really clever in how you positioned yourself, both in timing, location, ticket price, and and build up a core audience to get those early sales. That but. You can't. You have to keep the ticket price down, and that's the challenging bit. I'd say uh, also, um, although festivals are hard to start, and they have to start sustainably and slowly move on. I mean, we've been involved in so many that have gone like that and that, or like that, or like that. But uh, also, I don't know how many people here are doing this, but there's other forms of festivals like as i was saying earlier light festivals winter festivals is anybody in this audience doing a winter festival light festival anyone there's a man over there yeah these guys so those things are amazing because they are smashing the ticket sales out like crazy i mean we're involved in one in london in greenwich with hundreds of thousands of people you know and uh those things can start locally they can work with local artists which often, the way these things get organized, everyone leaves them too, too late and panics. But if they're working on all their light sculptures, I, I mean, I don't want to insult any light sculpture makers in here, but light sculpture guys are making so much cash because they're so in demand. And I don't want to put them down either again when I say local artists can do this stuff. There's kind of manuals out there. 
So yeah, you can create that quite cheaply and then get really high figures in and keep like to wake the target, keep building on your installations you put out until you know everyone from a 50 mile circle is gonna come to you and that's enough to have a very successful year. So, you know, there are other forms of these things being done, you know. I think, I think that's a really good point. And uh, obviously I was looking at music festivals there, but it's opening that, that business plan. You come back to the business model again, it's opening up the, what, you're gonna, what you want to be in the business for, if it's music or light. But the other thing about the light festivals is it's a wide demographic. It appeals to kids through to, to, to adults and, and that gives you the best chance of success. And it's generally sort of city centre on the periphery of, of cities. It's accessible and accessibility to events is, is, is crucial. And that's quite exciting, really. And obviously with, with people potentially buying less um, festival tickets this year, do you think um, people have more of an appreciation of these creative processes? Do you think there's less of a focus on big names on a lineup poster? I mean, I know Boomtown sold out last year without releasing a lineup, didn't they? Yeah, and Glastonbury's doing that for, been doing that for years. Um, and yeah, um, so I think definitely people are... I also think there's a real thing at the moment with um, recent technology and people being absolutely saturated and overstimulated with advertising everywhere. I mean, you see on the tube all over the place, you're constantly flicking through your phone. And to come into, to go somewhere, to go into an experience and feel that kind of full form of escapism where your mind can relax and focus on that one thing that is being done by these immersive experiences. Um, and festivals that have really great creative production, like the likes of Boomtown and Glastonbury, are bringing that to people. They are feeling like they're in a different world. They're believing that they're somewhere else and they can, you know, switch off, relax and appreciate. Yeah, I'll, I'll tell you what, this has been like my uh, thing for like 25 years because we don't really put a great big deal of value to the main stage uh, ever. Because we, you know, one main stage band pretty much covers a whole field in in my land, and we've always known that the people who come back to those festivals are coming back for these type of experiences as much as seeing whoever on the main stage. And uh, it took a very long time for festival organisers to take that seriously, whilst they still keep on this crazy model of paying a hundred thousand pounds for. A lot of grey, older bands, which, you know, people, they just don't even remember afterwards, but they're going to spend all night in our things. And that there's something anthropological about people being in a smaller space and interacting that you only really find at the, be you know, that you find at these things, big, small, village fate, massive festival. And that's really, like, really valuable. No one puts a price on that, but that, interaction, immersive entertainment, in immersive venues, micro venues, really make people remember the gig and want to go back more. And it is way better than spending a hundred grand on wet, wet, wet. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I think there's a real key Sorry thing. about that. There's a big fan of wet, wet, wet over there. Um, I've just lost what I was going to say then. Ignore me. Um, yeah, so did mention Ab Abba Voyage earlier. Is this um, this, ho this whole thing about holograms? Is that is that something you see expanding and, and getting bigger in the future? In terms of like not just Abba, but different um, artists potentially. I think that um, 
Yeah. I, I mean, ABBA's been a, a huge success. It was a massive, um, massive expense, but it, it, it's working. 180 million, yeah, but it's working and it, it, it's paying itself back and, it, and it's doing the job. And I think there will be bands that are, you know, coming towards the end of the careers with huge bad catalogs that are going to going to jump on that. But ultimately, I think as well, it all depends on the saturation and how how many you can do. But it, the world's a big place, and and these bands have got huge fan bases. So I, yeah, I do think there's a there's a place for that. But I think that's a that's a very different experience. That again, that's a different category of immersive experience, isn't it? That's you're sitting in an arena in an auditorium watching something on stage that is a hologram of acts. Now, is that immersive experience? Or is that just watching a band? I don't know. It's um, so I, I haven't been to the gig. I don't know if there is more to it than that. But it's um, I think I think we got to be careful about the the definitions and the uses. But taking nothing away from it, it's a a great business model and a and a, and a an amazing production um, and yeah I, I reckon there will be more yeah we're going to see a lot more of that I would imagine it's not going to cost 180 million quid to build your own theatre and build the whole show it's going to get a lot cheaper so but again it's actually <laughs> it's the grey pound the grey market it's also uh, turn the button on at 10.30 in the morning there's 10 shows <laughs> lined up all you have to do is sell ice creams and... It's all CapEx yeah, again, isn't it? It's not humans. So again, you know, I was speaking with Punch Drunk the other day, you know, and like there is a feeling amongst immersive theatre that this is a little bit scary. Especially, you know, any of you guys in this room can choose any artist that's over 75 years old or any painting artist and go and put your own bloody great project four walls with certain famous artists work and do a really low quality job and charge 50 quid for that and that's going on all over the place all over the place since these guys smashed bristol there's about four other extremely low well i will <laughs> be careful what i say there's some in comparison it's just nothing so there's a lot of rip-offs going off as well you know uh, in the switch it on in the morning and switch it off at the end of the night market. But yeah, it's a bit of a worry. I mean, it's an argument, isn't it? It's a, it's a conversation. You it's know. In, in technology as well, we we the in Wake the Tiger, we're looking at, um, you know, can we can we deliver messages with holograms instead of people in some locations? You need you need some people, but there's, there's some benefits to it as well um, in terms of. If you get an actor to do the hologram piece and, and it's scripted and, and it's curated properly, then the, you know that every customer is getting the same quality of experience. Um, there is places where we definitely need people and there's that more like backwards and forwards interaction, but there's other places where you just need onboarding and messaging and, and that technology, you only get the, the holograms at the moment in 2D and I think the 3D hologram technology, I don't know if ABBA's 3D, I m imagine it might be, but that, that's pretty, that's pretty advanced and quite expensive. Um, so, but all of that stuff is going to keep evolving over the, over the coming years as, as we look at all these different new experiences. Because as well, as it, as it grows, as, as, as it becomes more popular, the, the money in it's going to grow, the technology is going to advance quicker, and the products are going to advance quicker. And even, even what we've been doing, we are literally running every day to keep ahead and, and, and keep planning to just to stay current. And we've only been open six months. Uh, do you know what I mean? And it, it, it's bonkers because the, the time it takes, the lead time it takes to, to put the plan in place, to, to come up with the idea, to, to raise the funds if that's needed and then to, to install. It takes me a month to change a sign. 
like just by the time it just gets through this creative sign off and to the ops to the printer and back it, it just so to try and do something significant that is really creative and and and, and, and inspirational if you can do it it takes time but it, it's you've got to keep you've got to keep thinking and creating what other learnings have you had since uh, launching Wait the Tiger? Have you, have you any plans for expansion as well? Or is it still very yeah, early Yeah, yeah, we, we, we do have plans. We're doubling the size of it, actually. We've just, we just, um, yeah, we just started the design process at the moment. Nat is doing a little bit with us on that. And, um, yeah, so our footprint's doubling. We're going into a second level. It's, uh, it's really exciting where it's going. Um, let, we've done about 130,000 tickets since we opened. Um, which is which we're delighted about. It's fantastic, and it, and it doesn't seem to be, um, you know, dipping at all at the moment. So, um, and I think I just think that lessons-wise, there's so many. Like we, if we, it's, it's full on, like insane. It I take the one. It takes much longer than you think to design a gift shop. And uh, Imaginarium also in its early days. Um, what are you most excited for that you're currently working on this year? <laughs> Unfortunately, most of the stuff we work on is under NDA, including phase two of Wake the Tiger. <laughs> um, which is, to be fair, probably one of the most exciting things we're working on. Um, it's been really great to, I mean, what we started working on that in the beginning of 2021, I think, um, when the story was first developing. Um, and it's been really nice to be on that journey and see how it's developed over that time until it opened last year. Um, what else are we doing at the moment? Uh, we're doing a lot of work with Red Bull, actually, which is quite exciting. Um, we are designing stuff for their uh, premises in Covent Garden, because that's another side of, you could go, well, it's more experiential, I guess, but we do a lot of work with brands and how they interact with uh, their consumers or audience. And again, it's about data capture or making that uh, memory um, that the audience aren't going to forget so they remember their brand. And uh, Lost Horizon also in its early days. I suppose yeah, well, Lost Horizons, uh, we've got, <laughs> strange enough, I'm wondering if I can even talk about them. So, uh, we, we've been approached by place, famous venues in New Orleans to recreate digital versions of theirs. And the technology is just about getting there, as we were talking about ABBA. Yeah. We're now talking about how we can permanently have it set up on stage so that we can put people straight into digital venues and have all of that interactivity. So we're getting near a big breakthrough on that. And our Californian partners and kind of a lot of people are wondering what's going to happen next because Apple and Mac are going to release their... VR land or their version of the metaverse this year, so that's going to be really big. But on the human side, we've got our incredibly immersive venue, the Caravanserai in Brighton, for a whole month. We've got Shangri-La to build, create micro venues and little strange things in it as well. So, yeah. What I would really love is all of you guys to go and try and do your own thing because none of us are especially, well, not totally trained, but... <laughs> <laughs> none of us, none of us went to the immersive university course, uh, and uh, frankly, just use your local resources. It could be a much more better world than, as I say, booking bands you probably don't really want to book. Do you know what I mean? And paying tons of money for them, or or whatever, making your mansion more fav more famous, or whatever. You know. I, I think when you um, when you're creating stuff as well, that creating stuff is is so hard. You're making something out of nothing. That's the definition of it, and it that. 
that is a difficult process. It's an exhausting process. And one of the things that is really important and, and, and that we've learned and it is also quite, uh, if you're getting people to help you with that, is protecting your intellectual property of that. When it is, it's a, it's, a, it's a nuanced piece of work that you need to make sure, if you're working with artists or designers, but what, what you own, what they own, and so that you can develop, you don't want to be stuck in a position where you want to do it again somewhere, but you can't without asking Joe Bloggs their permission and you're like but we paid you for that so getting your contracts right and and uh, and you're happy with your ip is is really important yeah so. so correct yeah especially if you're working in a collective you need an understanding of how you can go forward without if the collective rips itself up the, the work continues you know that's a very good point that's point one but uh side to getting your collectives together please go and make some stuff you know, there is actually a school of experience now. I don't know whether you knew that, yeah. It's like a Hogwarts school for experience. Um, not Hogwarts, but you can see what I mean. Uh, yeah, I think it's over in Holland. The Dutch were the first on all of this, <laughs> definitely. Do we have any questions, or shall I carry on? Should we start with the first one? Um, is the economic situation negatively impacting investment and event creativity? We kind of kind of uh, covered that already but um yeah go on <laughs> so just well, just quickly on that um what i would say is that the um i've got to talk about this on friday as well actually is investment in the creative sector and what what you've got is the technical the tech space of creative is it, there is a lot more investment available for that space but it's a lot more competitive there's a lot more mar uh, people looking for that investment if you're going for tactile human real life stuff it is really hard to get investment um because of the capex the upfront costs you can't do a you can't do a quick demo or model um so you, you that's really difficult but i think that the economic situation has had an impact for sure. I had investors that were going to invest with us who pulled out because stocks were tanking or whatever it is. So it's had an impact, but I would say it's coming back because um, the creative sector, creativity is is the foundation for everything. It doesn't matter if you've, you've just you know built a tank. Someone had to come up with the idea of how it was going to work. Do you know what I mean? So everything comes with creative and it, it will come back and it, it is a, a strong foundation. And the, the minister for... Department of Culture, Media and Sport last night promised us more money. I was there. I don't trust her necessarily. <laughs> uh -huh. but. You know, chap GBT has said that the experience industry is going to be worth 12 billion by 2028. Must be true. <laughs> um, also, if you live in a non-London normal, if you're in a leveling up area, according to the Tories, uh, the Arts Council funding, as a lot of it has been moved into areas where there's very little Arts Council funding. And, you know, there's probably a chance that you could get money from the Arts Council in some way to develop your creative ideas, especially if you're not in London, Brighton, Bristol almost, actually. You know, those sort of places, you know. And that's quite positive for people, especially on that light show thing and stuff like that, you know. They're, they're things in... Exeter or anywhere, you know. I have to keep this out of my head. This is really awkward. Uh, next question. Yeah, good question. What new production tech has impressed you most in the past year? Well, I think AR is coming on quite a lot. Um, 
that it's still early stages, but there was quite a long time you had to have AR glasses to, to do it. And it's a, it's a much more like a good experience with AR glasses, but it's another thing. It's a cost. It's more headroom. The, the interactions with AR now with, on your phone is 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 really good so that that's something that's developing quite quite quickly so that's one that i'm looking at anyone else last question uh is wait the tiger attack attacking an audience beyond boomtown attendees <laughs> attacking i'm not sure we're attacking anyone but I, that could be the tiger reference perhaps but the um no, um, our our audience at Wait the Tiger is. I mean, I think there's some people from Boomtown have come, but it is. We have we have tourists. We have we have so many families that come. We got adults. So, I mean, I think 75% of our audience is 13 and over. Um, loads of kids. It's 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 amazing. Like when you when you when you're there, it, it, it makes me really happy. If I'm honest, like it, it's such a a. a you have a group of, of like 20 something or 30 something just going round together. You, you know, you, you have families, you have to, it's just brilliant. You've got all sorts of people from all, from all areas. And from, we've had, I mean, we've obviously our core areas around Bristol, um, you know, Bath, but Sheffield, really strong. Don't know why, get quite a lot from there. We've had folk from South Africa, Italy, America. We had folk coming from London. So we get, we get a wide range and it, it, it definitely, I would say it's, you know, 5%, 10% of maybe just Boomtown attendees, but they all love it as well, so. Yeah, it's very inclusive of all age groups and all demographics. Nailed it. <laughs> and yeah, last question from me, really. Um, what's, what, yeah, what's getting you most excited in the live, live event production world? You've touched on it a little bit a minute ago, but do you think, um, do you see the, metaver the metaverse and VR being used by more um, festival organizers in the next few years and you know how much do you think it will be used yeah that's really complex so again let's just get back to this thing it's like you got your vr glasses most people over the age of 35 feel vaguely sick when they use them uh and everybody was really concentrating on that stuff you know you had to have these things on but those days are quickly disappearing and it's gone down to multi-platform whatever you're looking at on it Every single new television being made from now on has got a kind of metaverse channel on it. And, uh, you know, the quality of the screens and everything is so high and the interaction, it, it's cut along. I don't want to get too technical about it, but basically in VR, you could only have about 100 people in a room and then someone physically had to make another room. All of that's disappeared now. Uh, latest Burning Man iteration had hundreds of thousands in it because it's not relying on the same use of bandwidth. So you can get more people in, you can be much more interactive. So I am looking at those sort of things, but really it's about getting that kind of ABBA-like quality, then that's where we're all moving towards. And I very much suspect after 17 years of not actually saying what they're going to do, when Apple say what they're going to do, I suspect it will be about a much clearer, easier to use version of all of that. That's what we're looking at. That's what we heard. Cool. Yeah, we've got a couple more minutes. Um, I'll finish with, um, if it, you said before, like coming up with the idea is like the hardest thing. So what's kind of your like top tip for someone who's thinking of launching an event? How, you know, where does this in inspiration come from? Um, I think, we always say that creativity has to lead the process. So you, you have to come up with a, quite hard to not just think about 
about Wait the Tiger and that the process we did there is like, I guess we had a set of parameters we wanted to hit. Like we wanted it to be accessible to all ages. We knew it had to be in Bristol and we knew we wanted to make another world. So we sort of set ourselves three, three core bandings that we had to hit. And then we, we, we started looking at, you know, what could what could that be? What what are the values of those worlds, and how are you going to do it? And I think it is it is it's a really difficult process. There was tears, arguments, the um, but you know ultimately you get something that's you know possibly could have been better, could have been different, but you end up going down a journey. And one of the things that sort of leading on from that is we're trying to write. So the the wait the tiger if, if I focus on that is a, is a, is a moment it's a time capsule in this story of, of what was what's happening in this this world of Meridia, and we want to build a novel a, a wider story and actually that is far more troublesome and contentious than trying to build a moment in time where you could all agree that's what happened in that moment like it opens up a whole story I've never written a book before and it's actually um, it's really troublesome especially if there's three or four of you because you've all got a different idea of like what's going to happen in the book. So I think um, I like to do, I'm quite a log logistically minded person. I quite like to have a bit of a structure that I then start filling in how we're going to do it. And so that, that's how I would work. Whereas Luke, for example, just has an idea. I don't know how you describe it. He just has an idea and, 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 and goes off. And, and I think the combination of, of the two of us has worked really well. So maybe having a good team would be it's put, in the long story short, having a really good team around you who complement each other um, would drive the project forward. So I'd say that's probably the, the starting point. I got there in the end. Unfortunately, that's all we've got time for. But thank you very much for uh, this conversation. I find it really interesting. Thanks a lot. Cheers. Thanks, Matt. Thank you.